So there's lots of important characters in the Bible whom we should just all know very well. Like, to know American history would mean we just have to know who George Washington is. Summarizing something big into something much smaller is an interesting project. To tell my story, for example, it's interesting to think, what would I have to include? You know, what would be the parts of my life I just couldn't do without if I was to tell you my story? What was formative or what was the best example of something I am or something I do or something I care about? If the Bible is a series of books that proclaim who God is and what God does, it would be tough but possible to highlight a few characters that push the story of God's promises and God's promise-keeping forward. God makes promises to Abraham, so we'd have to know about Abraham. We'd have to talk about him. And then the promise passes through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and eventually Moses. And maybe Moses is more familiar to us than most of the others. Maybe that's because there's more movies that have been made with Moses in them than most other stories. I mean, Moses is the one who is called through a burning bush that talks. That's pretty great, you know. Moses is the one who gets to tell the most powerful king in the world, the Egyptian pharaoh, that there's going to be this plague and then that plague and there's like frogs and gnats and there's blood in the river and there's death to the firstborn. And Moses gets that great line, let my people go, right? Maybe he didn't sing it, but maybe he did. The exodus from Egypt is an incredibly well-told, imaginative story. But once the people finally get to the promised land, the story then gets pretty complicated, and complicated doesn't make for movies that are much of a spectacle. And so by the time we get to the part of the Bible that we just heard from now, 1 Samuel, things could not be worse for Israel. As Alphanetta Wines, a biblical scholar, says, she is my primary source for just about everything I'm about to say, but she reminded me that Judges, the book that comes just before 1 Samuel, does not end happily. Like, if Judges is made into a movie, everyone would, at the end, as the credits are rolling, they'd start to look at each other like, what? Like, ser seriously? That's it? Judges ends with everything in chaos. That's not how movies are supposed to end. That's like the middle. One guy in Judges, Micah, he establishes an alternative worship system, which, of course, is not good. That's not what you're supposed to do. In those days, doing worship God's way was the whole point. It would be like me saying, okay, from now on, we're going to read from the Twilight series instead of the Bible, and we're going to do pizza and Pepsi instead of wine and bread. And prayer, by the way, eh, we don't need to do that at all, because what does that all mean anyway? Like, that would be bad, right? That wouldn't be a good idea on my part. You probably wouldn't all agree, but what if you did? What if you all were like, yeah, that is what the book I want to hear from, and that is what I want to eat. That's kind of what happened in Micah's community. In response to Micah's alternative worship, the tribe of Dan, they hear about this and they're like, hmm, why don't we get to do that? They take over a peaceful town violently. They steal Micah's gods, because Micah came up with other gods too, and Micah's priest, and they adopt this whole new religion for themselves. And then there's a civil war that breaks out between different parts of the tribe of Benjamin due to lots of terrible sexual crimes committed on a massive scale, it's not great. 
Like, the whole end of Judges is awful. Israel is falling apart into violence, into idolatry, into faithlessness. They had created a system where judges were to be in charge, almost like regional or city like mayors or administrators, but no judge can quite get a grip over all the conflicting interests, and it just it all fails miserably. So the suspense at this point of the Bible, if you're just kind of reading along, is rooted in questions like these. How can God's chosen people, these descendants of Father Abraham, how can they possibly continue? I mean, these people are about to wipe themselves out, right? They're, they're, they're about to be like a failed state. Is this where God's promise fails to be kept? Is this the point? Not because of God, of course. The blame would completely fall on these terrible people. Or the suspense is held in, how is God going to fix this? It's a crucial turning point in the entire history of God's salvation, and I'm not sure most Christians could name who God calls to be the prophet at this moment. Like, we know who God calls to bring people out of slavery in Egypt. We know that's Moses. But who does God call to be the last judge, the one who is going to anoint Saul and David the first kings of Israel? Who is this guy who brings Israel back from the brink of self-destruction, a giant of faith? Samuel. But to understand who Samuel is and what he means, we first have to know the story of Hannah, his mother. Maybe you remember this, maybe you don't, but in Genesis, God always does God's best work from barren nothingness. God is said to speak creation into existence from nothing, right? There's nothing. Abraham and Sarah are promised descendants as numerous as the stars, but even into very old age, they remain barren. Only once they give up on trying to make life happen on their own terms, like when Abraham takes another wife and has children from her, God's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. God's point with Abraham and Sarah's barrenness is that there's nothing you're going to be able to do to secure your own future. This life in front of you isn't up to you. You're not in control. God is. And so finally, after Abraham and Sarah both get it, we call them getting it faith, from their barrenness, God gives the gift of a son, Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, then carry on the promise of God. Rebekah is of good stock. She's like as good as they could come. He's the son uh, Abraham had been waiting for in faith for a long time. You'd think if anybody was going to be guaranteed to have children, to carry forth the promise, it would be Isaac and Rebekah. But no, they too are said to be barren. Again, the point is that there is no guarantee of life. Only God gives life. And amidst their barrenness, Isaac and Rebekah, from a place of faithfulness, have twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, I say all this because when the authors of 1 Samuel tell their story about Samuel's life and ministry, they want us readers to connect some dots. They're saying this guy, Samuel, came from one who was barren. Hannah is her name. 
God spoke life into nothingness at the dawn of creation. God brought life from the barrenness of Sarah and Rebecca. And here in 1 Samuel, God is up to God's old tricks. Samuel, too, is not born from only natural conception. God brings Samuel's life to be from nothingness. And Hannah got it. Just like Abraham and Sarah eventually did. Just like Isaac and Rebecca did. Hannah understood that although it would have been legal for her to have surrogates bear children and she could raise them as her own, Rachel and Leah had chosen that route, which created lots of trouble in their families, Hannah would not follow their lead. Instead, she takes her longing for a child only to God. Samuel is God's answer to Hannah's faithful prayers. So, in faith, having received this gift… What does Hannah do with this gift? Out of gratitude, out of faithfulness, she offers Samuel back to God. She leaves him with Eli, a priest. I mean, it's an amazing story of faithfulness. It's meant to be a story of extreme faithfulness. Hannah's something, which means Samuel is going to be something too. Moses, you might remember, resists his call. At the burning bush, he comes up with all kinds of excuses as to why he's not really the best guy to do this kind of work that God wants done. But Samuel, he just embraces his call right away. God's call comes to him as a voice in the middle of the night. Three times Samuel thinks it's Eli, but Eli helps Samuel realize, no, it's God. Answer God's call, Eli says, and Samuel does. He doesn't object. He doesn't resist. He just returns to his resting place in the house of the Lord, ready to do the work God puts in front of him. But being called by God is not like winning the lottery. Samuel isn't going to be called into fame and fortune. Being Samuel is going to be tough work. He would be elevated to judge, the last judge of Israel. He'd be a military leader that conquered Philistines. He'd be a seer that knew if you're going to do kings, that's not going to work out well. But when the people call for a king, he then finally anoints the first king, Saul, and the next king, David. Through it all, Samuel is a prophet. That is a mouthpiece for God, saying what God wants to have said. He warns Saul, for example, that his reckless lack of faith is going to get him in trouble. And of course, no prophet gets to say what needs to be said and remain a happy-go-lucky guy. It was tough being Samuel. Alphanetta Wine says, the record shows Samuel did his job well. And then she says, much like so many who have held churches together through the pandemic, Samuel held Israel together during its transition. And this is where I couldn't agree more. But not just about amazing people holding the church together. Sometimes preaching this text is about proclaiming God's call, and I guess I'm still going to do that. God does still call. God equips each of us and all of us with gifts to use for the sake of the world. Maybe your world that you're called to give your gifts to is your, your family or your friends. Maybe it's more from your role here at First Lutheran to your role on some team or maybe in a classroom or at your company or in the community. Everybody's got a job to do, and we all are called. 
But tonight I want to do more than just alert you to the truth that God calls you or that God calls us to certain work we're called to do together. I want to give thanks for the ways you've helped to hold this church together amidst a pandemic, wearing a mask in worship so that the greatest number of people possible feel safe to worship in person. For you who chose to say yes to being a confirmation guide, some of you said yes last year knowing that it was going to include Zoomed small groups, which were not great. Some of you have held your family together amidst a time when nothing has been normal and every decision has been a variation on That's been hard Samuel kind of work, and you've done it faithfully, persistently, like God would have you do so. This is one of those readings, I think we can look in the mirror and be reminded, we've been called and we've risen to the occasion on an individual basis and together, because there have been times when we maybe haven't answered the call with only radical faithfulness. <laughs> At least I haven't, not every day. And yet in grace, we've continued to do it as a family of faith, as your own families, as a community. We continue to do the Samuel work that needs to be done. We may not all have been born from barren mothers, but we have all been called. In baptism, we were called to respond to all the great joys of life and to crises that come along with gratitude and with grace so that all would remember and see that God's grace and mercy are greater than any challenge, than any evil any of us will ever know. Thanks be to God for your faithfulness. Amen.